Podcast 036, Aquaculture, Community, and Weeds. Sponsored by my buddies at PantryParatus.com. They sell food preservation tools. Produce, prepare, preserve your own harvest. All right. We're in the uh, Iron Horse Pub in Missoula, Montana. This used to be, uh, this actually used to be next to the railroad tracks because Iron Horse, you know, is, is, is uh, the, the engine on the old, on the old train. So, um, but anyway, now they've moved it. We're, we're like a block away from the railroad track. So this is an old establishment made new or something it used like to that. Been married with the Iron Brewing Company. Big Missoula Boars. Went from oh okay Bayern Ironworks from the railroad track to Hamburger Ace okay it was Hamburger Ace it was uh, organic produce store here it was okay. here um, I remember that Bayern is over uh, Russell okay on Wyoming or Montana okay. And we're here today because we just got done where I was giving a presentation on showing some Seth Holster movies and stuff like that. And uh, uh, and we said, hey, let's, let's, let's go after and we'll talk a little bit more about permaculture and why. So, so with me uh, here is Rob. Krista. Susie. And Caleb. All right, now I do know that Caleb, you listen to every one of my podcasts at least twice. Uh, almost, probably all of them twice. Yeah, because I did go back and listen to the Cast Iron one again. <laughs> Which at first that was the one I waited the longest to listen to, and since then I have not cooked in any nonstick pan anything. I put it out. It's been purely cast iron since then. I can attest to that. I came home three weeks ago and I removed two nonstick pans from the kitchen, and not a word has been said. No one has noticed. I physically removed them, and no one has said anything. They stick more than the cast iron. The, the, the nonstick sticks more than the cast iron does now. It absolutely does. You know, earlier tonight, when before the presentation started, I thought you were telling me something about how you listen to Helen Atow stuff at least three times a pop. Yeah, four times, at least. And I've gone back to parts. But yeah, that's, especially the ones that have got a lot of information in them. And I'll listen to them while I work or while I drive, something like that, pick up something new just about every time I listen to it. So now, I, I made two more podcasts with her today, so I guess anybody listening to this probably knows that now. <laughs> so, uh, um, but anyway, all right. So, uh, um, while we're here, we're, we, we got our drinks. We're, uh, we're waiting. Uh, I, I got a, I got some food coming because I'm powerful hungry. Uh, um, what's the first question? You guys got a question for me? I mean, that's, cause the thing is about these podcasts is I, I kind of don't know what, what it is people want to hear about. And, and so I get people sending me suggestions about things to talk about, but then when the, when I turn the damn contraption on, I can't remember what the questions were. I said, I need Jocelyn to line all this stuff up. Cause she ain't here, so. Do we get to ask you live now? So, and you can't say no. Is there any questions? Oh, you'll find out if I'll say no. You find out. Go ahead and try me. Um, I'm not going to go there yet. <laughs> Let's, uh, <laughs> since we just watched Seth Holter's video, one question I had wrote down was uh, natural fish food. And I think he had some polywogs in there, and I knew that uh, you'd built a pond in uh, Mount 
can. Right, so you have left that. And I was just wondering what, what features you could put in for uh, naturally producing fish food, basically. Tell me you can talk about that for a minute. Well, now, I, I built a pond uh, out on Mount Spokane that was um, uh, the beginning of a massive system of ponds. But then I, shortly after finishing the pond, I, I left that farm. But this particular pond had a very deep bowl and what the hell is the music they're playing here? <laughs> I thought this was a family restaurant. <laughs> so, uh, what what the hell do those women have on their heads? I saw that, but you are so into There's something going on out there. Crazy hats on the women. Okay. <laughs> so I, I had this pond. It had a really deep bowl. And then it had a long finger off of it that went along the side of the hill that was perfectly level with the pond. So what you've got is a pond that's a good 10, 12 feet deep. And that makes a really good trout habitat. And then you got this finger. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and then um, so there, see, we really are at the restaurant. <laughs> just in case, just in case you thought we were faking it. So uh, uh, the the long finger on the pond starts off at three feet deep, and it ends up a foot deep, and that makes really good trout food habitat. So then, um, uh, and the different depths are important because the, some some depths are going to be really good for for one kind of critter, and the other depths are going to be good for another kind of critter. But then um, now that water is going to get to be pretty warm in there, and it's going to be warm and shallow. Trout don't like going in there. They don't like going, but boy, they sure like the food that pours out of there, and and food pouring. And, and so then, after I left the farm, then it, the the pond never got stocked with trout. And so I heard the following year that you would walk up to the pond and the pond would be totally black. But as you'd get up to the edge, this big spot would open up and you'd see the water was actually clear. It's, it's the zillions of polywogs that are backing up. So now there's there's going to be um, polywogs, mosquitoes, there's going to be Daphne, there's going to be all kinds of critters in that water there. Um, plus, as time goes on, then uh, the, the, the water is going to, you know, um, evaporate a bit and then improve the dew factor in, for the rest of the surrounding land. Okay, I have a couple questions on that now. Can you go deeper than 12 feet in a pond, and how long until you establish this cycle? How, how long when you dug your pond until it was feeding itself? Well, based on that report about the polywogs, I'd say a year, and you're in good shape. Um, as far as how deep, I mean, um, I, I had these fellows come out. I, I had a bunch of advice 
about pawns from a bunch of different government offices. And basically it's like um, uh, there's a bunch of government offices that will pay you to build a pawn, and then a lot of those exact same offices and some other offices that utterly and completely forbid it. And um, uh, so anyway, I did a lot of checking around. I had these guys that would forbid or support or whatever. All of them come out and give me advice. And here's how the advice generally went. They would say, I am not saying that it's better to ask forgiveness than permission if your pawn dam is eight feet tall or less and the total size of your pond is less than a quarter of an acre. So they gave me lots of advice that started with, I am not saying... <laughs> That's my favorite kind of advice. Yeah, that, that was awesome. I thought that was really awesome that they could give that. That was in Missoula County? In Missoula County? Oh, no. No. Uh, yeah, in Spokane County, where I no longer live. So I'm giving it up. I'm, those guys are probably going to go to jail now or something. <laughs> Criminal. Giving advice, telling people the way that it is. So the tapered end of the pond, did you taper from three feet to one foot straight? Or did you go, you know, a three-foot section, step to a one foot, and kind of a mixture? Or was it basically just a straight taper? You ever driven a traco? Yeah, actually I have. Okay, so you can probably think about this for about two seconds and you have the answer. How perfect of a flat level does it make? <laughs> flat level? What? Yeah. <laughs> no, I drove the traco in there and I dug it around and, and I kind of... of a mixture. It, it was, it, it's all over the place. It was cattywampus all along that. And, you know, but it was kind of like three feet at one and then it got okay. so foot then it. And then, you know, I also designed it so that the emergency overflow is down at the end of the finger. Okay, so it's a very shallowest end. Is your emergency overflow? Yeah, because in, in the pond I built some other things. I mean, basically this particular spot had um, uh, during the summertime it had less than a gallon per minute of water, and it would like go underground a lot, so effectively dry up a lot. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to try and keep the water flowing um, above ground, and I wanted to get it to dribble into the pond to keep it aerated. So um, I de devised a system, and, and in, in fact, um, my, uh, I call him my Aryan neighbor. The guy that was there, that he lived next door, he was... Uh, a piece of something or another. Anyway, uh, he uh, he would always call uh, every government office on me to turn me in for everything he could think of. Because of course, being permaculture, that's bad, right? That you better call the police if you see somebody doing permaculture, because there's probably a log in it. So anyway, uh, um, uh, as I was driving away from the farm, and like I made the choice to leave the farm. Then I get a phone call, and it's like, yeah, this is a government office or something or another. I can't remember which one it was. And I'm calling you because of an anonymous tip. I'm sure we both know who that was. And uh, uh, I'm supposed to say cease and desist and all that stuff. And I said, okay, let me tell you what I did. And after I told him, he's like saying, oh, yeah? And he's asking me, like, all kinds of questions. He's like, now i got to come out and see it because he wasn't going to come out. Because yeah. it's like he just is following orders. Like, he has to call, and then he has to bury it. <laughs> it's like, now I gotta come out, I gotta see this thing. 
So anyway, uh, so what I did was is that I put a poly pipe through the middle of the dam, but I made it so that it goes up into the dam and it hits a certain apex and then goes back down. I wanted to keep the poly pipe in the dam a bit because um, when it's freezing outside, the the frost will go down 18 inches. So I wanted to keep it below that so that way the water that flows through the pipe will not freeze. And then the apex of the pipe determines the height of the water inside the pond. But that, but it, but the poly pipe can only it was one inch poly pipe, and so so you can only take a flow that's up to what can fit through a one inch poly pipe. And then uh, in the wintertime, when the flow is bigger than what will fit through a one inch poly pipe, then it goes through the emergency overflow. Um, but then the thing is, is that the one inch poly pipe, as it's going uphill, so it's still like on the pond side of the dam, it converts to a one and a half inch poly pipe. That way, you don't get any siphoning effect. I thought you defeated it. I was gonna, that was going to be my next question. You were thinking about that. Cause, cause you can put a draft in the top of the poly pipe that sticks out of the dam, but then you, you know that yeah. cows or something is going to mung that all up. Probably children. Those children. They're everywhere. <laughs> your rocks drop really nice in there, I bet. They suck your palm dry. So, yeah. And so the thing is, I think I don't want to do that, but the, the whole idea of having a bigger poly pipe just before the apex keeps the siphoning effect from happening. Then the intake for the poly pipe, I, um, I hooked up some stuff to, to float and sink so that the intake for the poly pipe is three feet off of the floor of the pond. So if the ice freezes two feet thick, I'm still pulling in water that's warmer than 32 degrees. And then I'm running that through the dam, so it should not freeze inside the dam. It's running warm water through it. And then as it dribbles into the next dam, it's still warm enough that it still shouldn't freeze as it, as it flows into the next pond. Because the idea is I'm going to step the pond, have a series of ponds. Can you just clarify, is the pipe buried in the dam, or is it exposed? Definitely buried in the dam. Now, now there's a risk with this, and there's ways to mitigate the risk. The risk is, much like why you can't have trees growing on your dam, the risk is the water will follow the pipe on the outside of the pipe and then create this brand-new little creek that flows right next to it, and then it'll get bigger and bigger and bigger, and next thing you know, the whole dam's gone downstream to visit the neighbors. So um, there's a couple of things that I've done to mitigate that. And and so one of them is, is that at the apex, I poured in a blob of cement, rough, really rough cement. So it's harder for it to follow that. And and when you get the soil packed down on top of it, then it's going to be a, a tighter pack. The other thing is, is that because it goes through at the apex, water pressure at the apex is near zero. Very little water pressure. Now, um, when water is going out the overflow, the water pressure is going to be slightly higher, but it's still pretty low. And it's got a, and, and I kind of buried a lot of the pipe into the dam going down the inside side. So that way, it's got to go through a lot of stuff, and it's got to go uphill first, which, of course, when you're under pressure, going uphill is no big deal. But it's got to travel a ways until it gets to the apex. So I'm, I mean, granted, there's some risk there. There is some risk there. But I, I think that the upside's outweigh the downside, and I was anxious to see if, if anything bad ever happened. Um, I had, I've had some people say, no, no, you've got to run it low through the dam. And the only reason I can think of to do that is because 
it's got to, because if you run it through the base of the dam, it's such a long, long distance that the pipe has to go a long, long way to do that. And so I'm thinking that um, in, in that case, it's that long distance of packed soil that helps to keep water from flowing along it. But at the base of the dam, the water pressure is higher. And so I don't know if there's been any studies on it, but I sure did a hell of a lot of reading on it. And I couldn't, I, I found a lot of people saying you got to do that. And I just, I was not finding any information on why. They're like, just do what I'm telling you. But, you know, I see a lot of stuff that says, just do what I say, and they don't have any explanation for it. And it turns out that they're wrong. So, um, and you know what? Uh, Sep runs it low. Sep, and so I, maybe I am wrong. Maybe Sep is right. Would you have the ability to actually drain the pond then the way that it is with, with the level that you're actually pulling out? You wouldn't actually be able to drain the entire pond to, say, do maintenance or, or pull silt out or something of that nature. I, I did drain the pond once. Um, like the dam, like the pond was filling faster than I could build the dam. And so what I did was, is I went and I got a uh, big chunk of two-inch poly pipe. And um, I shoved a big, I shoved the whole pipe in, into the water. And then I put my hand over one end. And then I went over the other side of the dam and I took my hand off. Siphon. There it goes. That was, I mean, it wasn't that hard. Now, Seth uses the monk. So, um, uh, he's, he's got a special way where his pipe goes to the low part of the dam, and then it does a 90-degree turn upward, and then the water comes in right at the top of the pipe. And oftentimes it makes that tip, 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 tip sound. Um, and then he can, he can move the, the, the monk left and right because it can kind of rotate on, at the elbow. And, um, and then by moving it to the side, it'll go lower, and then that could lower the overall level of the pond. Now, he says that he can do something where he puts, like, um, a hose or something on it, and then he'll, he's able to, like, empty a pond. I don't fully understand that. I guess somebody had to go into the pond and connect a hose, like, pull pull the monk off at the elbow and stick a hose on there? I don't know. Um, maybe maybe uh, put something on the end of the uh, monk and then uh, uh, like that's hose-like and then dip that underwater? I, I'm not really sure. Put a section of poly, ho- poly pipe being able to drain the thing, that's problem solved. For being able to drain the whole thing. Easy. Yeah, that's, that's what I did. I, I think it, it worked good enough. So um, I'm going to pause this thing for a minute while I eat my, my goodies. But everyone had a cow, and they hire a shepherd to come and pick the cows up every morning. And so the cows are waiting at the gate, and the shepherd comes and picks them up and grazes them all day, and he brings them back. And in the evening, you see the tatiks, which are the grandmas, the moms, the wives, the sisters out there waiting for their cows to come home, and the cows know which way is home, so they turn left, they turn right. I mean, they're just really not herded. And they're, this is in Armenia. It is in Armenia, in Hayastan, where everyone keeps a cow in a yard half the size of a Missoula city lot, because all they have to do is shelter it for the evening, and it's a community co-op effort where these animals are grazed in a healthy way sustainable way on a bigger portion of land with less effort. So this, are these dairy cattle? 
I think some folks do keep dairy cows and some folks don't. Um, I never stayed with a family that did keep cows. Armenia is very poor, so some it, it depends on what kind of money you have or what kind of family you have. Did everybody have garden? Everybody gardens in their own yard. There's no such thing as a lawn where you would sit out and pan or play volleyball or what have you. Everyone grows their peppers, their greens, which is parsley, cilantro, watercress, um, you know, things like that. They're all growing it all over their yard, and there's tons of grapevines, lots of homemade vodka. You notice how she mentioned the vodka multiple times. Uh, you're, you're a fan of the vodka. There's plenty of it. <laughs> that didn't answer my question. But I think that was the point. Oh, okay. Okay, all right. Let's just going. say it's an experience you will always forget. For, you will forget. You will always forget, yes. <laughs> all right, well, that sounds like what a lot of people are shooting for here in the United States, but... Totally different reasoning, I guess. So I was thinking cows from Missoula City Lot to uh, Mount Sentinel. Or maybe goats see some of those weeds, too, a little bit of mixture of all of it. Well, the trees are growing. So, like, everybody can have their own goat or cow. And yeah. The, the, the herder comes by uh-huh. in the morning, takes your critter up on the Mount Sentinel or something, and then uh, comes back later in the day, and your cow or goat goes the way to your place. Of course, you know, I think I think a lot of people, I mean, I, I think it'd be cool for some people, but I think most people aren't going to go for it. Most people aren't going to want that. And, of course, you know, it's probably against the law to have that right now. At least have a, have a cow. I don't think anybody's like... It is, but the alternative is to have one person mass-producing all of these cattle and mass-managing all of this land for you to come to your table, and you don't even know them. So by the time it shows up at your plate, who knows what's happened? Well, that's, that's true. And, and I like the idea that we're doing some of the urban farming, where people will, like, uh, you know, stick or seven houses all in one block will get together and it'll be one backyard farm kind of thing. You can have a goat that wanders around. but And, and I do like the, the community effort to be able to take everybody's animals up on the on the hillside. I mean, that, that just sounds brilliant. And I'm just, I'm just thinking, because like, okay, with the story of the rocket mass heaters, you know, they came in and uh, these people were like having their fires inside of their home without a chimney and the house would just fill up with smoke. So they came in, they brought them a solar oven, and uh, the solar oven thing didn't take. They just converted them into nice jewelry. I think in the United States, the idea of the collective herdsmen probably isn't going to happen. Um, although I think it's really good because our culture isn't ready for something that extreme. And permaculture folks, or even even folks that are of the mind that they would like to have a goat or a cow or something like that, are probably going to be something to the tune of about 1 in 200 in, in a American uh, urbanish thing, or uh, uh, suburban or urban? I think a couple things. I think Americans aren't ready for the responsibility, first and foremost, of having an animal that, let's say a goat, has to be milked twice a day if you're going to be using it for milk, right? 365 days a year. How do you maintain that? And when you do, it's almost too much for your family. So it's a lot of work. 
and you have, you know, an abundance of that. But I do, secondly, also think that we are leaning that way because we do have the wild sheep grazing, you know, on Waterworks Hill and over by Mount Jumbo to, you know, keep the noxious weed population down. So we are migrating that way. So, okay, I, I think there's a, there's a great point in here, and that is the thing about the, uh, the like, if you have two gallons of milk per day. Now, one, one quick thing is that if you keep the calf, put the calf on the cow half the time or, or three-quarters of the time, you end up with just the right amount of milk or whatever. But but even more than that, even more more important than that, is that um, I, I had a conversation with a fella uh, the other day, which I thought just drove home uh, such an important point, and that is that um, he grew a great big garden. He loved the garden. did not care to cook. Loved, loved the garden. And his wife, yeah. you know, said she'd cook. But when it came right down to it, everybody wanted to get Domino's pizza. <laughs> everybody wanted to go to the McDonald's. Everybody wanted to go and eat at these other places. And she didn't really want to cook all that much anyway. So a lot of that food in that garden went to waste. And, and now... One of these days, I'm going to make a big podcast talking about community stuff because I think that the solution for something like that would be you got 20 people living under one roof, and then let's just magically suppose for now until I reveal the way. Let's just suppose it's magic that they all get along, no one gets stabbed, anything like that. They all get on, and so then, but you got a couple of folks in this group that are. Honestly, keen on cooking. They're big on it. They're they love to cook. They love to convert that garden. But they're just itching for a garden. Oh, if they're now, I've met a lot of people. I, I, I'd say of all the people who can cook, only about one in four is keen on gardening, which is a real interesting thing. And then of all the people who love to garden, only about one in four is keen on cooking. And so it, it seems like you could have in this house of twenty people, you could have two or three people that are powerful keen on gardening and two or three people that are powerful keen on cooking and next thing you know you got three meals a day up here and there of damn good food better than anything at McDonald's or at Domino's Pizza and so it's all being utilized but if you stick to the single-family household, it tends to not work out. Now, you know, 60 years ago, in the land of uh, June and Ward Cleaver, I imagine that it was an era where you said, Woman, get in the kitchen and make me a pie. So, I mean, basically, uh, it, was, it was expected. It happened. And, that's, and so it's like the guy would have to go out, he'd have to go and work. And, uh, and June Cleaver stayed at home, and she gladly uh, prepared three meals a day. And, and it was cheap. I lived in a community for a while where uh, we did, we shared uh, two meals a day were, were cooked. And everybody would sign up for two meals a week to prepare, and it worked out, it worked out mathematically. <clears throat> the, uh, all of our food was organic, and everybody could have unlimited food, and the food bill turned out to be $108 per month per person. And I would think that most people would hear that and think, that is just insane. And we didn't have any limit. Now, we did not buy any prepared food, so we, we bought a lot of flour, rice, beans. We bought a lot of meat. That was like open, you know, hamburger was great, sausages were great. A lot of that was bought. Um, 
of vegetables, a lot of a lot of different things, a lot of fresh produce. So um, $108 a month, and it was first-class food all the way, first-class. Better than going to any restaurant. We had a lot of good cooks in the house. So, and uh, fewer people tended to show up for the meals I prepared. <laughs> but you get the idea. But it was still a bargain. It was a bargain, and it could work. And, I mean, there's a lot more to it. There's a lot of a lot of other bits and bobs. But when you brought up the thing about what's somebody going to do with all that extra milk? Well, one thing is is that if it's a commodity, if it's something that the, the neighborhood values, they could sell it. But I, I think the bigger problem is is um, for somebody uh, who will actually consume it or use it or whatever, because you have extra milk, and of course the obvious thing is is that you um, preserve the milk, which is making cheese. Right. But that's a lot of work. When you're already working full-time, let's say, because we're American, you're going out milking in the morning, you're feeding, you're cleaning, whatever you're going to do. You're doing all that in the evening, too. Who has time to preserve it all, too? I mean, you need a calm. Did you see my video with Chemo and his cheese cave? No. So there's, there's a family, two people. He just loved to make his cheese. So, of course, you got somebody bonkers about cheese, and you got that covered. If, and now if you've got a community of 20 people who are, many of whom are keen on the homesteading thing, I mean, there's uh, probably half of them are nuts about making cheese. It's, it's like, you know, it's, a, it's an easy thing to do. It's kind of fun. And there's different wild flavors you can do and stuff like that. It's, but I think the idea is that you need community because you can't be a cheese expert, you can't be a pond expert, you can't do all of these things in a timely fashion, right? You're singing my song. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with it. I mean, I, I feel like I've, I've got a powerful passion about a lot of this stuff, but I've got, I mean, I cannot cook. I, I really, I, I, I have some serious problems in that space. And, um, uh, and, and so, but no, yeah, I, I, I recognize and respect that I have a powerful need to be part of a community where there are people who can do this, this stuff that I seem to fall short on. But. You're projecting the situation that you saw in Armenia to our American standards, which I think is appropriate, and I agree with your analysis. People just ain't going to do that, and and um, and that's that's something that that, that I think um, I don't I don't want to be of the camp of we have to address that we have to like force people to like milky cows. I, I don't think that's the way to go. But I, I do think, like, let's find ways to um, reduce the barriers in this space. And I, and I think a big part of it is, is like, because in, in 2005, when I left the farm, the, the big thing that was on my mind for the weeks just before leaving the farm was, we need, we need more people to do this. To pull it all off, to have to make it all happen, because there's like a lot of the stuff I want to be part of, but I can't run point on everything. And and so um, I, what I want to do is I want to be part of a group where there is somebody who's like, I want to make cheese. And then there's another person who's like, bees, I want to do bees. And then there's, there's another person who's all about some other aspect. They're, they're about the pond and the fish, and it's all about the fish. It's all, and there's another guy that's like, uh, I'm, I'm all about the, uh, the, the, the hydropower. Where's my soldering gut, you know? And and so then you you bring all these crazy people together, and then all and you, you, there's the magic thing that I mentioned earlier, but they don't stab each other. I think that's an important thing that they don't stab.
stab each other. That's, that's the important thing. I think so, that takes some magic. Hey, and I think I've got some stuff figured out. But my point is, in 2005, I realized we needed to have more people. I, I kind of figured out that, okay, this works into this intentional community space. And I spent years studying intentional community stuff. So I lived in some. I started one. <laughs> I, uh, I, I I spent a lot of time with Diana Lee Christian, the author of the two biggest books on community. And um, after all of this time, I tried a lot of different things to try and get different stuff to work. And after all this time, I believe that, and I've seen examples of stuff work. The Bullock Brothers totally works. Not a consensus system. I've been to a lot of farms where they have effectively community. They have a bunch of people living there. Not a consensus-based system. I mean, basically, you've got a, you've got generally one person who's in charge and a bunch of people who like being there, and it works out. Whereas in a consensus-based official, I see that what happens is that everybody's got an equal say, and any one person can stop up the works for everything else. And I've been to a bunch of those, and they are horribly dysfunctional. Diana Lee Christian points out that there's a 90% failure rate. And then of the ones that are of the 10% successes, I'm, I have a hard time finding ones where, that are not dysfunctional and not having a problem. One of the, one of the premier intentional communities in all the United States is Lost Valley, and they're switching away from a consensus-based system to something that's basically hierarchical. So, that's like a preview of some other podcast that's coming later. I had an experience like that myself where uh, I bought 20 acres with the idea that 10 people would get two acres each and that would be a democracy. And then it, it, it instead of working, it, it, it was very conflictual. I don't know if that's the word, but uh, every, you know, like you couldn't put a shovel, you couldn't put a shovel on the ground with someone thinking that was not a good idea. Right. So you couldn't do anything. With a democracy, you, you have something where 51% rules. That means, and when you have 51% rules, that means 49% gets screwed. So, so 49% are going to lose, and, and then it's like, you know, and there's no vision there. I mean, um, it, it's possible that, that somebody could have a thing where it's like there's these ten components, and they all come together, and it makes a symphony. And then, on the other hand, if you go around and you vote on everything, then it's like, well, you know, we're going to bring in a trumpet, but it's only going to play jazz. And we're going to come in, we're going to bring in a sax, and it's going to play something experimental. And then we're going to have a drum, but only a bass drum. And it's going to be run by a monkey. And we're going to bring in, you know, so then you end up with not a symphony, but you end up with crazy. Lots of rules. Yeah, and I think anytime you get you start getting a lot of rules, that's a that's a sign of dysfunction in itself. So like when you go out to um Hermes.com, there's one rule. Who here remembers the rule? Oh be nice. There you go. Two words. I hope you uh, wrote it down so you can remember it. Uh, you know, the, the thing is, is that the whole document can easily fit on a single sheet of paper if you were to print it out. 
being nice. So, um, uh, and then I'm the only person who interprets what that means. So if anybody wants to start saying, oh, no, that's not nice, or this is nice, or I'm deciding what's nice or whatever, nah, I don't buy it. I'm the only person who gets to decide. So um, then uh, our, our, our community at Fermi's.com has been growing by leaps and bounds. And, and a big part of what I think makes it a big success is being able to um, separate out the wheat from the chaff. And so some folks just punch. being able Being able to let people go from your community is an important component. Being able to send people down the road. So, one more thing about the magic and Armenia. In Armenian, magic is focus mocus. Okay. <laughs> Did you just make that up? No. This is true. It's focus mocus. Rhyme. It's true. So, so that is this in English? That just sounds goofy. But maybe this is like actual Armenian words that that mean something else. Well, in Armenian, they do like to rhyme, but focus mocus is kind of as goofy as pulling a rabbit out of a hat, right? And that's kind of the definition of magic, wouldn't you say? Okay. So, do they, so they literally say focus mocus, and it means just as much gibberish as it does here. Yes. Okay. All right. So uh, uh, anybody else have anything else to add to this podcast? Any other questions or or uh, are we good? Are we done? I don't know. You want to keep going? I, I've got about four more minutes of fuel left. Four more minutes of fuel? Okay. How about the mullet plant, which is different from the mullet that that one woman mentioned at the presentation, which is a hairdo. Yes. I've actually had both. <laughs> mullet and mullet. Okay. But I was thinking... That sounds like an album title. <laughs> we have uh, quite a few of them that have been volunteering around and uh, in this, this year in the garden, wherever they've popped up. And we're like, hey, awesome. You looked cool last year. Let's leave you there. So I'm wondering, uh, besides the, the toilet paper comment you made earlier, what other uh, functions they have? So I've, I've got a bunch of video cobbled together for Mullen from a bunch of different people. And uh, I kind of feel like I want to get a couple more because I'm getting a lot of really good stuff about Mullen that I never knew. I always just thought it was a weed, but it, it came up so rarely, I, I never really thought. I mean, I I'm, on my farm, there's probably a couple hundred of them, but they're so spread apart. It's like they're not exactly dominating anything. So I just let them go. I didn't care. But now I've been hearing um, all this really interesting stuff about it. First of all, uh, I've had several women report that when you're outside, this is the plant that you want to saddle up next to a few times a day. It is the best. The best. The best. So uh, that's an important thing, I, I think, on a farm, especially a permaculture farm. Uh, maybe maybe Mullen, Mullen evolved to be that way. <laughs> they get lots of fertilizer that way. <laughs> Part of survival. <laughs> it's true. Tidiness. <laughs> so... Uh, um, I've, I've, I've heard some people say that there's like a spiritual aspect to it that like uh, it's 
it brings good luck or, or something. I didn't, I, I'd have to go back and look at the videos of it, but, but like two or three people said exactly the same thing. Like it, it's a, a sign of good luck. Somebody said that they felt that it was a sign of good fertility, but I've seen it growing in some really not fertile spots. So, um, the other reference. Oh, <laughs> oh, like it's phallic. <laughs> okay, I get it. It's very phallic. Yeah, it's like got a bunch of them on there. It's growing in the gravel pit. I don't know about the fertility thing. It's ribbed for her pleasure. <laughs> and you smoke it for a sore throat. Oh yeah, really? I, I heard it did have some medicinal stuff. Yeah. If you try it, if you dry the leaves and make a teas and sweep your lungs. So, it, it does seem like there's a there's a list of good stuff for it. Um, and uh, but everybody that I saw and I asked about it, they were like, I like it. I mean, it is kind of got a certain, uh, from the plant world, it's got a certain majesticness to it. It does. It, it, generally, you don't get to a spot where there's like 40 mullein plants all in a bunch. Usually, it's one by itself, you know, and it's, it's a fabric. Uh, and and it's, uh, I don't know, it's a nice-looking plant, and it's so soft. <laughs> oh, we're back to that. I think we already covered that, didn't we? So we we let one go to seed last year in the garden, just because it wasn't really in the way. And I always kind of saw him as a weed, but I was like, hey, you're not really a weed. I don't know what you are, you know. So we let it go to seed, and we've got probably six that popped up in this in this area now, and it's thriving and literally in in uh, just turned up sand and gravel. Did nothing. Oh no, six is taking over. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Now I know I can do something with it too. Is it, is well, it, it, if you're growing it in, in gravel, I mean, I think if you can get anything to grow, then that's improving the yeah. soil. I mean, yeah. it, it's adding organic matter in its root system below the soil level, and then it's going to plop over and add more organic matter to the top. Yay, mullen! Exactly. We pretty much we we call them volunteers. There are no weeds anymore. We call them volunteers. Whatever's growing, we're like, yes, we'll kill you later if we don't like you. But right now, we'll, we'll keep you. <laughs> and actually, the weeds provide great nurseries for what you are planting, where a little sprout is protected by the, the fast-growing weeds. And then uh, when the plant you like is getting higher, you pull the weeds, and then it mulch. Uh, chop and drop. Chop and drop. I, I could show lots of different examples of that in our place. Where there's a particular weed, especially in the clay-based areas that uh, that uh, had been turned over, there's a weed that came in. It's like eight feet tall. I don't know what it is. I thought, oh, this is terrible. Now, this year I went back there and looked, and there's grass in there now that's grown up inside of it. And it's like, oh, this is perfect. I've, I've got like a half an hour of video of Skeeter uh, going through his big patches with a sickle and saying, this weed here, and then he'll like tell you a seven-second story of a weed. And he's like, I'm going to leave that. And then this stuff here, I don't like that. And he pulls it out. And then he goes on to the next thing. And he's doing a bunch of chop and drop. And he's doing this, that, and the other thing. And it just goes, the thing is, is that he's going so fast, you can't quite make out what he's hacking out. 
Oh, you know, it's like, this is called so-and-so, and it's like, I didn't even get to see it. So it's like one of those things where it's like, I, I was thinking, who would I name this video? Just Skeeter and Weed? Skeeter, and they're not weeds then. Skeeter and his sickle. <laughs> Just call it weed and see how many YouTube videos. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, that's it. One more thing. Uh, if you have a weed, like I don't know, mullen, like depending on the root, that it could be delivering moisture or nutrients from a different layer. Uh, all all plants are doing that. Unfortunately, few are doing something allopathic. And I would think anything allopathic is typically something that I'm going to, you know, give a distinct eye that I'm probably going to discourage. But you're right. Um, um, nearly all plants. Napweed. Napweed. Napweed is allopathic. Yeah, it exudes niacin out of its roots. So for those listening, for the pod people out there, then uh, napweed is something we have a lot of in this area, and it's it's kind of like the big one that most people are fighting. But it actually turns to be one of the easier ones to fight uh, once you know how. Um, but it, it does. Whenever you're trying to do a monocrop on a on a dry sandy soil, napweed shows up. Uh, but well, once you move into a polyculture, the napweed just moves out. All right, and now I'm... Oh, you've got one more thing? So, pod people, Paul has agreed to come to Caleb and I's house in a couple of weeks. Stay tuned. We're so excited to have you. See you then. See, now, if you listen to all of my podcasts twice, (laughs) I might come to your house, too. You have to live in the Missoula area. (laughs) Yeah. That's a bargain. little side effect. You guys are going to feed me, right? Yeah. yeah. What's your favorite meal? I mean, what do you like to eat? <laughs> well, I think pie is good. So, uh, just pie. That's easy. <laughs> so, uh, so I, uh, well, we can talk more about that later, you know, but, uh, um, I, and, and pie has got everything in it that I probably shouldn't eat, uh, although, uh, separate pie. <laughs> so I, I, I think that, uh, um, there's, there's, I, I'm, I'm constantly going back and forth between the things that I know that are good for me and the things that uh, make life worth living, like pie. <laughs> even though, even without pie, my life is awesome. So, all right, anything else? Can, can we can we be done? Focus, focus. I guess focus, focus. <laughs> right. It, it sounds like something you could get at Starbucks. <laughs> you cannot get it at Starbucks. <laughs> it's the mocha part of mocha. Nobody can even know if you're lying unless you've been to Armenia. Yeah. He's making this shit up. <laughs> making it up. <laughs> All right. If you like this sort of thing, you can Google it, maybe. Come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about plants that some people like better than others, <laughs> homesteading, and permaculture all the damn time. 